Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Byron Callen of Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. But first, joining us is former Deputy Defense Secretary Bill Lynn, who is now the Chairman and CEO of Leonardo DRS. Bill, thanks so very much for joining us. It's an absolute pleasure having you on. Great to be here, Vago. Nice to talk with you. It's a pleasure indeed, and it's a little bit overdue, so I'm glad we're finally having uh, this uh, opportunity. Before we get started, today's program is brought to you by HII. HII is one of the largest artificial intelligence and machine learning federal contractors to the U.S. government. HII, delivering hard stuff done right. And Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval warfare coverage. Um, We've got a uh, $482 billion budget request uh, sitting in front of Congress. Obviously, they're going to be on break for about another week. Um, It was trimmed a little bit by the White House at the last minute, sparking some challenges within the department to try to make everything fit within that top line. Uh, It's also sparked a little bit of ire up on the Hill where lawmakers were expecting uh, a bigger budget and they've pledged to add a lot more money to it uh, at this uh, time when, you know, there's a war going on, uh, obviously with, uh, you know, Ukraine is at war with Russia and tensions are rising with China. The trouble is there's an impasse on the Hill, including within the Republican caucus, not to make this political at all, over passing a debt ceiling increase. You've been watching this for a long time, whether you've been uh, comptroller, whether you've been in industry, whether you were deputy secretary and now uh, chairman and CEO of a, of a traded company. How's this going to play out, Bill? And what's your uh, estimate on where we're going to end up uh, budget target wise? Well, uh, Vago, I think, you know, looking at the big picture, the defense budget is at a peacetime high. So the, this is a very substantial budget. Uh, I think the initial worries that uh, a Democratic president was going to lower the defense budget uh, uh, proved to be erroneous. And uh, Biden has successively uh, proposed moderate increases in the budget. And as you indicated, Congress is then built on those increases. I, I think we're going to see that again. I think we're going to see Congress add to the president's request, probably not as much as last year. Last year at I think it was about a $35 billion ad. That's that's very substantial. I think it'll be less than that, but I, I think there will be an increase. Um, the, the debt ceiling is going to be, I think, a, a significant part of the process by which we get a budget. It's going to be uh, quite ugly, but I think the result is still going to be a uh, defense budget that's somewhat higher than the president uh, just requested. Do you have any uh, amount you think at this point, right? I mean, folks banded around a $30 billion number, uh, other numbers. Is there is there a top line amount that jumps to mind before we go to sweet spots within that budget? I, I don't have a number, I think, uh, beyond saying I think it's going to be less than last year's ad, but I think there's going to be, you know, a, a relatively substantial ad uh, this year again. And in terms of how that budget is shaking out, are there any surprises in terms of where uh, the investment dollars are going? Because I know that you and your team watch that very carefully to see where the, you know, where the, the proverbial, uh, you know, skating to where you think the puck's going to be 
where some, uh, you know, how is the evolution of this budget changing, right? What is it that surprised you about it, if anything? Well, I, I mean, I think the the budget has shifted uh, in the aftermath of Ukraine to a little bit broader set of capabilities uh, than just the, the Pacific-related forces. That's, I think, been to the benefit of the Army. I think that makes sense. Even without Ukraine, I think it's it's uh, dangerous for a superpower, a global superpower, to try and specialize in its military capabilities. Uh, we don't know, uh, you know, we can anticipate threats. Obviously, the rise of, of China is a significant one, but it's not the only one. And I think we have to be uh, prepared with a, a very balanced set of military forces. I think the Ukraine uh, invasion by Putin uh, obviously startled people and, and put uh, ground forces in Europe uh, back on the map as part of the, the security equation. Inflation uh, is seen uh, as uh, a persistent challenge, right? I mean, uh, as we've discussed on this program, uh, and our audience is familiar with a little bit of schizophrenia uh, without being uh, insulting to anybody in the part of the market, right? It's it's going to be a soft landing. It's going to be a hard landing. We've turned a corner on inflation. Oh, my God, inflation is going to be persistent. Obviously, the Fed continues uh, to fight that. From your standpoint, it's driven up the cost of everything from materials for a while. Energy was soaring and, and people costs have been growing uh, as well, although recent tech layoffs might ameliorate that pressure a little bit. What's the inflation impact been on the company and how are you guys working to handle it? And how much of this is just going to the customer and asking them for redress? You're right. The, the, I mean, the inflation is, uh, hits on both sides of the equation, both the material costs go up as well as the, uh, the labor costs. And, and we are uh, seeing that. And particularly when you're dealing with fixed price contracts, the, uh, you have to find a way to absorb it. Uh, now, in some cases, you know, your suppliers uh, may be on fixed price contracts as well, so they would uh, absorb some of it. It is difficult to go back to the government and renegotiate fixed price contracts uh, based on new assumptions. But what you can do is negotiate the new contracts with much higher uh, inflation assumptions in them. And that's that's what we do. We're, it takes, we're on a, maybe a three or four year center for our contracts. In other words, all of them uh, turn over within three or four years. Uh, so we're about a year into that, about, in other words, about a year into heightened inflation. So we've negotiated, uh, I don't know, a quarter or a third, renegotiated a quarter or a third of our contracts. And over the course of the next year, we'll get well over, uh, over half. And that's ultimately, uh, uh, how, I think, how you absorb this is, in the new new fixed price contract, you put the uh, the new assumptions, and uh, at that point you've accommodated. Uh, until you do that, you have to uh, find ways to offset the increased inflation uh, through, uh, hopefully, through increased uh, efficiencies and sharing some of the risk with suppliers. Has uh, people been a challenge uh, in terms of both retention and recruitment? Well, uh, people's a challenge on both sides. Uh, uh, one is, as you, as we talked about just now, uh, the the costs of people are going up because of, of inflation. And then it, despite the inflation and despite the worries about a recession, the uh, the labor market is still uh, still quite hot. And so we've, we we uh, aggressively 
maintain, uh, you know, top of the market uh, benefit and pay packages. And then that uh, that generally serves to uh, keep, you know, some balance uh, in, in the workforce and, and keep retention at the levels that you need to uh, to execute your your revenue for the year. Have you been pushed to doing any sort of cost ma- uh, cost saving uh, maneuvers uh, at the end of the day in order to be able to balance the inflation uh, and the added uh, people cost? Because as a as a guy who's covered uh, the corporate side of the equation for a long time, occasionally companies get themselves into trouble as they try to do this. Have you been been pushed to do any of that, or is this uh, at this point are you able uh, to to balance this in a way? Uh, without necessarily going into any cost reduction uh, modes, I, we we try and balance it, as you said. I mean, we 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 have an ongoing uh, program that tries to uh, develop one, two, three percent a, a year in cost efficiencies, just by finding supply chain efficiencies, by you know consolidating physical locations, all the various steps. That wasn't started for inflation, but it. It, we just have it as an ongoing uh, 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 program to uh, try and, you know, frankly, drive profit up. But in, in this case, it's being more used to offset inflation rather than drive profit up. Um, you know, you, me- you mentioned supply chains. Supply chains worldwide have been disrupted in the wake of the pandemic uh, in, in part because of surging demands. We've seen that in everything from computer chips uh, to uh, materials. And supply chains have suddenly become a very hot topic in the wake uh, of Russia's war on Ukraine and rising tensions with China. Indeed, it was one of the drivers in the Chips Act uh, legislation to uh, repatriate, if you will, uh, chip uh, technology and chip making capability to the to the uh, United States. Uh, and now there's a discussion about surge capacity and how much surge capacity uh, to put aside. You're a key player in the whole ecosystem. You're a supplier, uh, but you also are supplied, uh, right? How's your mm-hmm. supply chain doing? And what do government and industry need to be doing together to build that kind of resilient supply chain for the future? Uh, God forbid, if we need it, say in in two or three years. Yeah, I mean, I think what we're seeing, Vago, with the supply chain is we're starting to see some stabilization, particularly in electronic components, which is the most important part of the supply chain for us. And we're not we're not seeing uh, uh, well. First, the the lead times uh, expanded greatly. I mean, from 30, 60, 90 days out to, you know, six months or or greater. Uh, We've now started to see that stabilize, although we don't see a return to pre-pandemic norms for a while, certainly not in in 2023. So what we're trying to do is absorb those longer uh, lead times into our uh, uh, process uh, for delivery, and that, and so with that, what we're trying to do is, in some cases, we're buying things ahead of need. We're buying in more bulk. We're giving uh, our suppliers much more visibility into our our future needs, so that they can uh, perhaps invest in an additional capacity if they know uh, the work is coming. We're trying to to cushion. Uh, that in a number of ways, and I, I think that's it's at a higher level. That's what the government needs to be doing. I mean, we need to move away from the the construct of just in time delivery. We now need to have sort of a just in case uh, approach, so that we have sufficient stocks, even if lead times slide up 
somewhat more. I, I think both at the sort of the micro level, that's what industry needs to be doing. And at the macro level, that's what the government needs to be doing. Throughout most of your Pentagon career, right? I mean, we were at the end of the Cold War uh, or we were struggling with the Budget Control Act where everybody was trying to squeeze as much efficiency as possible out of the system. What's the balance point, right? How much excess capacity and resilience do we need to build into this system? And does a CHIPS Act investment style plan, do, do we need to have a CHIPS style investment plan for defense industrial capability to sort of park capacity and have it ready in the event that we need it given where we're going? Or, or do we just solve this by orders, frankly? What's the best uh, way to handle that balance point? I, I mean, I think at the government level where you're going, I, mean, I think you need to take a, a careful and differentiated list uh, look at, at where you need that that extra capacity. And it, it, it will require uh, investment. Uh, and But you need to decide how much of this do you need and how, how much can you afford? Uh, because you have to give something else up to get that capacity. Right. So it, it's... It's uh, so I, I don't think it's it's something it's not something you do across the board. I think you have to do it, you know, service by service, capability by capability, and you have to assess, you know, against your you know likely opponents, your war plans, and assess where do you think you're going to need that capacity and and how much, uh, and then develop a plan. Uh, to make the investments uh, to get that capacity. Everybody in the department has been talking about doing things faster. I mean, I know that that was one of your charges. Uh, Iraq and Afghanistan were, um, you know, at their height. Uh, and you were trying to, along with the team with uh, Secretary Gates, to push capability uh, forward more quickly. And I know that that was something uh, that the late Ash Carter was working on when he was uh, under Secretary of Acquisition and something he continued when he was deputy and then when he was secretary. From your standpoint, is the department moving faster on some of this stuff? Uh, you know, given that now it's already been 11 years that, or, or 10 years, a little more than 10 years that you've been at DRS. Um, do you see things moving faster? I mean, I, I think the, the overall process improves just incrementally, but that the department responds extremely effectively to crises. And I think what you're, that's what you're seeing in Ukraine. I think that the, the response has been, been rapid. Uh, it has been appropriate. I think it's made a huge difference uh, in Ukraine. So I, I think that in terms of where it was most needed, which is Ukraine, the department's performance has been exemplary. Um, but more broadly, in terms of just sort of day-to-day -day doing business, is the ball moving a little bit faster? It's moving. I mean, I think, you know, each administration builds on the, the prior one and tries to improve the process. I, I, I frankly haven't seen dramatic gains in terms of the process, uh, but I think incremental improvement is, is what you can expect. But let me ask, I, I want to go to the industry uh, uh, point in a minute, but I mean, you, you mentioned uh, Ukraine uh, again. What are some of the lessons that you're drawing as a CEO uh, and former senior defense official from watching this crisis that's helping you sort of map out your strategic future? Because you guys pride yourself on having a pretty disciplined strategic planning focus. What are some of the things that you guys are concluding from watching all of this? Well, I mean, I think for us, I think the the Ukraine conflict is highlighted one of 
uh, our major market areas in, in force protection. I think the, the vulnerability, particularly of the Russian forces, uh, to drones, to attack from the air, to uh, attack by uh, uh, armored vehicles, attacked uh, by uh, shoulder launch and other uh, uh, projectiles have all highlighted that, that uh, force protection uh, is, is critical. And uh, I mean, another one of our areas is, is advanced sensing. And again, I think the ability to uh, see further than the adversary is, has been uh, shown what we always knew, but that, that, ha that, that need has uh, been reinforced by what you've seen in Ukraine. Pentagon just issued a new report on the health of the industrial base, noting that it's in the best shape that it's been in uh, since 2010, uh, including on the profit side uh, of the equation. As a CEO, what are the key takeaways from the defense contract finance study that's just been released and what it might mean politically, given that there are some members who uh, have focused on corporate profits as being uh, something bad, as opposed to being something good that then gives you, you know, the ability to, to uh, you know, invest in your strategic future, which is something you guys uh, have been doing, which is why you have a leadership position in so many subsegments of the market. As you said, the study uh, said that the defense industrial base is is basically healthy. I I think it did say you know profits are somewhat higher, but they're not extraordinary. Uh, I think they were around ten percent, if I remember right, from the study, which is actually you know lower than commercial markets. But it's it's a different kind of uh, bargain that you strike with the government, where the government pays a substantial part of the development. Uh, and the the profits are more restrained as opposed to the commercial market, where generally the industry pays for all of the development, and then it it uh, uh, gets the fruit of its uh, of its investment if it's if it's successful. I, I think the the study reinforced that that bargain uh, still exists. Uh, I think it did highlight that in some cases. Uh, there wasn't as much uh, a flow down as success in the lower tiers of the market, the supply chain, small businesses. And I think that may be an area that, that people want to address is, uh, you know, is, you know, for example, is cash flow uh, flowing down at the, at the right pace from the prime contractors down to the subcontractors. Let me uh, take you uh, to uh, your uh, listing uh, on uh, the NASDAQ. Congratulations uh, on that. Uh, it was on the second uh, try, but it's been uh, successful. I should uh, note uh, that uh, Leonardo, uh, uh, your former parent company, uh, owns uh, 80, uh, uh, controls 80% uh, of the shares. Uh, still, this functionally changes the entire organizational structure uh, and, and future uh, of uh, the company. Um, what, do, what has functionally changed? And what do you tell the Pentagon when they ask what you being a traded company, vice a U.S. subsidiary of an Italian one, means on a day-to-day -day basis? You know, I think we, we have more uh, financial and operational flexibility. Uh, we're able to do more uh, strategically. And I think for the Pentagon, uh, it, it provides an even stronger player in the, in the mid-tier range uh, where there, there has been, uh, you know, the department's worried about consolidation at the, at the upper tiers. So a, a stronger uh, mid-tier, I think, uh, helps uh, the, uh, enhance the competition across the defense space, which I think is going to be good uh, for the taxpayers in terms of cost efficiency and good for the warfighters in terms of getting the best technology 
out to the out to the edge. As you were uh, going through your IPO, uh, you also acquired an innovative Israeli company uh, called uh, Rada. How's the integration going, and what are the capabilities that they give you that you didn't have before? Uh, uh, first, the integration is going extremely well. We think we'll be uh, have them fully uh, inside uh, by by summer, uh, and they were enormously excited by the capabilities they uh, bring us. They're uh, one of, if not the leading tactical radar uh, company in the world. That's uh, been critical in short-range air defense and active protection systems. A whole variety of force protection systems. Uh, uh, RADA has a size, weight, and power advantage over, over many of our, our competitors. And that, when you have a mobile radar, that's, that's a, a, an enormous competitive advantage. Uh, and they've, they've been able to deliver with that. And we think uh, putting them inside the broader uh, DRS perimeter is going to help us in the immediate term in terms of our force protection offerings, just giving us a much more complete set of offerings. And uh, the longer term, it pulls the one sensor uh, that we didn't have inside DRS, which was a radar. And we think given that where the future of sensing is going, which is towards integration, having uh, a radar, not just as a, a sensor, but as a communications node and a node for electronic warfare, uh, is gonna be enormously important as we integrate uh, all of these uh, inputs to be able to provide uh, decision quality and actionable uh, data to uh, commanders in the vehicles and then the upper echelons. Uh, and and that's the theme, right? I mean, it's not that's not just the theme you're seeing in, in uh, the Russia-Ukraine war, but also something that's been in uh, in increasing uh, demand uh, in the Asia Pacific and and really uh, world uh, worldwide. Um, I, I want to congratulate you on the Columbia Award, a $1 billion uh, contract uh, for uh, the uh, electric propulsion train for this new class of ballistic missile submarine as the Navy uh, tries uh, to build an even quieter sub uh, than its predecessor. Um, how do you see that investment you guys have made in this technology in partnership with the Navy? but also to try to adapt it for the surface force, because increasingly you hear uh, Navy leaders talk about the importance of an electric propulsion train and the flexibility uh, it, it can give uh, in the design of the ship uh, fundamentally, uh, and also reduced long-term life cycle costs. How are you guys sort of leveraging the undersea investment to the surface side of the house? Um, you know, at a time when, when the Navy budget's going up and there is uh, a demand for a bigger Navy, a more capable Navy. Well, I mean, I think this is an important development, Vago. The Navy has been trying to get to electric propulsion since I was in the Pentagon's Comptroller in the 90s. Uh, I think uh, we've now delivered it uh, for the Columbia-class uh, submarine. So we've uh, now proven out the technology. And as you suggest, it has far greater application than just the uh, Columbia Ballistic Missile-class submarine. Uh, I, I think it has application for the next generation attack submarine. And I think the Navy is already moving towards including it in the, uh, the next generation of uh, surface combatants called the DDGX. And, and the reason they're including it is that you know, not only is it you know, more efficient with fuel and therefore less costly, but it also provides the kind of surge power you need uh, for all the sensors and communications equipment we now put on, on combatants and, and the likely future that we're going to be using directed energy weapons in the not too distant future with even uh, greater uh, energy requirements. And also, as you indicated, uh, 
electric uh, drive is much quieter. Uh, and it, that's as we watch uh, the Chinese uh, develop in, increased uh, uh, capabilities, uh, matching them and overmatching them with uh, quietness in our ships and submarines is going to be critical. Bill, uh, thanks so very much for joining us. Absolute pleasure having you on the program. Fair winds following seas as we're ending this on a Navy note uh, and look forward to welcoming you back on the program soon. Thanks very much and break a leg through the through the budget process. Thanks very much, Vago. It was a pleasure talking with you. I was going to say, and as it's Monday, joining us is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners. But it's Tuesday, but it's still the week ahead uh, segment because of the Easter holiday Byron, thanks so much for joining us and hope you had a great holiday. I did, Bago. Wonderful. I hope you did with your family as well, too. Uh, indeed, it was uh, it was it was great and a great time uh, off. I, mean, I want to start off on macro uh, economic uh, factors that you included in your thoughtful start of the week note. It's a big week for really kind of the global macroeconomic outlook and all the things that ultimately weigh on defense spending. The World Bank IMF spring meeting is taking place in Washington, D.C., and there are going to be a series of events, discussions, panels, and interviews and news flow, I think, around what's the state of the global economy? You know, how is the war in Ukraine affecting things? How are our governments balancing this, this tension between interest rates and inflation and, you know, what's been an increasing debt load uh, that a lot of countries are bearing? So, again, it's it's not directly... Um, bearing on on defense budgets but but it certainly you know kind of undergrids how much countries can ex can spend and it also points to maybe some friction points or areas of instability that can also shape the global security environment and and what are what do you think are some of the biggest factors that folks have got to be paying attention to right i mean we heard on the show uh yesterday from Ron, right? The market doesn't know where it's going. So it's kind of like up and down and we're seeing a bit of volatility as people try to figure this out, hard landing, soft landing. What's your sense on, on the biggest issues that folks have got to be paying attention to from a fundamental standpoint? The main issues, Vog, are kind of what the markets have been focused on for a while now, which is, you know, inflation has come in hotter than people have expected. I think there's some reasons for that. They don't necessarily just have to do with the pandemic. Uh, there are demographic changes that are taking place. There's a cost to reshore things um, to the United States. You've had an end of Europe. Um, you know, you've had some shocks, although they've dissipated in commodities markets from the war uh, between Russia and Ukraine. And so um, I, I, I think that's that's one thing to watch out of this. The other is obviously just, so what's going to be done for Ukraine's reconstruction? There is an event, I believe it's on Wednesday, where uh, Ukraine's Zelensky is going to be speaking with Treasury Secretary Yellen, and hopefully they're going to touch on some of this, because um, as much as we all focus on the military aid that's going to Ukraine, you know, there's a lot of financial aid that's going to that country as well to keep, kind of keep it afloat. You know, their economy has really been hammered by a very brutal, nasty war. And, and then there's a the question about, well, what happens after this? You know, you've got to think not the next couple of days, weeks, or months, but years, there's going to be a reconstruction of Ukraine at some point. And I think, you know, one obvious solution to that is, is some of the Russian assets or all of the Russian assets that have been seized by, by a number of countries after, uh, after Russia invaded Ukraine at scale. 
let me ask you uh, about some interesting polling data, right? I mean, we have the a tendency of believing that there's universal support uh, for defense spending, that uh, the American people understand the threat from China. Look, a balloon flew over us. Look what Russia is doing in Ukraine. Walk us through some some polls uh, that you think should give people pause and and uh, maybe a moment of reflection. Yeah, the, the poll that I was referring to, and I wrote this in my note that went out to people on Sunday night, was uh, it was a University of Chicago AP poll that looked at, I think one of the questions was, you know, do you think government spending is too high, too little, or about the right amount? And 60% of the respondents <clears throat> said it's too high. So, you know, certainly what you've been talking about with your Friday panelists about the debt ceiling and what's going to happen in the FY24 budget, you know, what's going to be the House Republican plan to, to deal with all this, you know, that would that would kind of give credence to, oh, maybe there's some traction here that there really is a lot of popular support to cut federal spending. But <clears throat> the same poll then asked people, you know, do they think uh, spending in, in specific areas was you know, about right, too little or too much. And the the kind of amazing counterfactual in this poll was people thought there was too little spending on healthcare, education, infrastructure, border security. I mean, you could rack and stack out all this. And the, the one area that there is an agreement that the U.S., um, that, that the public thought the U.S. was spending too much was <clears throat> foreign aid, um, and that represents about 0.5% of the FY24 budget request. So I think this is a real interesting, it's almost schizophrenic in, right. in my view. You know, it's fine to talk about government spending in theory, but don't touch my benefits or don't touch anything <clears throat> that could impact my life. And that's going to make, I think, you know, A, to me, it, it makes me a bit more sanguine about how this is all going to play out, because I think when people really start seeing, well, what do these cuts really mean? Um, there's going to be a lot of uh, uh, a retreat, frankly. And, um, you know, I mean, it will affect people's reelection prospects <clears throat> in 2024. And the other thing, it just it just says that, you know, look, as much as people may complain about uh, spending in theory, they do appreciate some of the benefits they get in reality. Do, does this shape the debt default debate, right? I mean, Republicans Absolutely. are now fighting amongst themselves. Yeah, so just... I, I think, yeah, you saw, you saw, you know, some some infighting uh, last week with, with Speaker McCarthy having some not so nice comments about the House budget chair, but I don't know. I mean, there's going to be drama. I don't doubt that. But, you know, it, people point to the 2011 uh, uh, standoff between, you know, uh, Republican House and, a, and a, a Democratic president, I think it almost goes back to the Newt Gingrich standoff with Bill Clinton, um, where, you know, ultimately, uh, you know, it failed. I mean, and, and it, the Republicans got blamed for a lot of, of the drama around this. Uh, so unless their messaging changes and or they find some ways to really make spending cuts without harming kind of the day-to-day -day benefits that people see, maybe talking more about how do you reform government? How do you really make delivery more effective or cost-effective? But if it's a just simple, hey, let's take a chainsaw to the budget, um, it, it's going to have blowback and I think very negative consequences. And it's going to take time <clears throat> for that to dawn on people. But I think it really, it takes the wind out of the sails of you know a full-blown debt crisis that we're going to go right up to the limit and... Um, you know, 
uh, we could have a couple of days of a federal shutdown. But, you know, again, I, I just don't, I'm not, I get the drama, but I don't think we're going to go over the edge on it. Uh, I, I hope not, because even getting close to the edge uh, led to a, a downgrade uh, in our credit rating that we haven't earned uh, back. But I would argue, I would argue that we are in uh, truly uncharted territory, the kernels of which uh, were sown uh, back uh, in the in the Gingrich era. Uh, let me ask you about the defense contract finance study report. Um, there were a lot of people who didn't even know that this was going on, uh, but it's uh, interesting. Uh, give the audience your take, and we can take a deeper dive on it as it's just been uh, released. Yep, hot off the presses yesterday on Monday. Um, I still have to read through it, Vago, as, as usual. There are a couple hundred pages of the base report and then the appendices that go with us. I think the lead takeaway was, you know, DOD had contracted with a couple of different universities. I think George Mason, uh, University of Virginia, maybe University of Tennessee, um, the last one I'm not sure of. But the the point of this was, <clears throat> let's take a look at profit policy and um, contractor financing, which is basically progress payments. The The headline takeaway seems to be, we're okay with our profit policies. You know, the industry is in good financial health. It should stay that way. But um, the progress payments, they're not flowing down to the, the smaller uh, suppliers in the business. And I think that creates a little bit of a, a, an issue for the largest contractors that have seen these progress payments accelerated. So what DOD does with these recommendations is going to be kind of interesting because uh, because arguably, you know, we've talked about this, you know, in an environment where you're spending a lot of your excess cash flow on share buybacks, when this kind of study pops out and, you know, it finds that, hey, what you're supposed to be doing, which is getting a lot of this free cash flow down to the supplier base, um, it's not it's not being felt, then they're, the, the interesting question is, the, so what? So what is DOD going to do about that? Uh, it is going to be interesting, uh, certainly interesting uh, to watch. Give the audience a sense of what are the big things they've got to be paying attention to this week. There's a uh, U.S.-China Economic Security Commission hearing on kind of Chinese defense technologies, which I think will be interesting. That's Thursday. Uh, there's some other think tank events. I think CSIS is doing one on the Russian defense industry and sanctions on Friday. <clears throat> and um, and then again, they're they're just they're they're twenty or thirty separate events. Atlantic Council, the, the um, Peterson um, Institute, are are doing a whole bunch of events on um, uh, kind of what what is coming out of the World Bank IMF meeting, global macro, you know, some of these specific issues that are that are country specific or more generic ones. I know there was one on Monday on kind of the debt. Uh, interest rate trade-off. So there's going to be a lot of chatter around that too. Or he spoke like, cause you're going to run this what midday. So I should probably uh, mid, midday. So, uh, at, you know, Vago, by the time people are hearing this, why don't you say it that way? Uh, yeah, Vago, by the time people are hearing this, uh, the army undersecretary will have spoken at the association for us army at a breakfast meeting they held earlier today on Tuesday, two things on Wednesday. Um, Treasury is releasing its monthly statement for March. That rounds out the first quarter of calendar 2023. So we got to look at defense outlays. That's a good read through to how contractors may be reporting. 
in the upcoming earnings season. Also on Wednesday, Atlantic Council is holding an event with their commission on uh, that's looking at defense innovation. Uh, they're, they're kind of doing an interim report launch. Uh, that should be pretty interesting too on what's been a perennial topical issue with the Department of Defense. The one other thing is the uh, monthly treasury statement will be released on Wednesday um, and they will then round out the calendar quarter, first quarter of this year, defense outlays. And that's kind of a good read through on, on hey, you know, is the DOD flowing uh, capital out? And, you know, how how's that kind of the curtain raiser for the earnings season that's going to start on April 18th when Lockheed Martin reports? Uh, it is going to be uh, interesting indeed. Byron, thanks so very much for joining us. Thank you very much for doing the whole uh, hard work uh, for our benefit, including reading uh, lengthy reports and telling us what they say. So thanks so much for doing that. Thank you, Vago. Cheers. That's terrific. All right.